John chapter 7. If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 7 today because we're going through John. We did chapter 6 last week, and I like to be logical and sequential. So, uh, but as I was reading through John 7, interesting thing happened. I, I, it's Friday, and Sunday's coming, and so I'm trying to prepare notes, so this is something you'll find interesting. And, uh, and I'm, I've read through John 7 two or three times now, and I'm going, God, I really have no idea where to go with this. Uh, I could sum this up as you spent a week at the temple making people angry. That's pretty much the whole chapter. And um, so, but the Holy Spirit, one of his titles is helper. And so I lean on that hard. He's a really good helper. And so uh, I said, Holy Spirit, help me, which I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag here. I do this every week. Uh, Holy Spirit, help me understand. What you and, and the impression I got was, hey, just blow through the story and focus on the words of Jesus. And I went, okay. And as I started to do that, the whole thing unfolded, and I went, this is good now. I'm enjoying myself. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to, I'll just tell you the story. I'm not going to read a lot of John chapter 7, but we will pause and read where Jesus says things. And what we're going to find is he's uh, giving us principles that we can apply to our lives. Okay? And so I'm going to try and highlight those principles. So let's dive in. Now it starts, Jesus is in Galilee, which is where he grew up. It's his hometown, you know, Nazareth in Galilee. Remember, uh, uh, Jerusalem is in the southern part of Israel. Galilee is in the northern part, in between Samaria. And uh, he's hanging around, and he's not going to Judea. He's specifically avoiding Judea because the Jews want to kill him. Now, he's not scared either. He just doesn't want to make it an issue right yet. He's not ready for him being killed being an issue. So he's staying in <clears throat> Galilee, and his brothers, his literal brothers, um, who it says in the passage uh, don't believe in him yet, we know they will, or at least one of them, James, uh, will believe in him so much that he'll write a book, which we call James. Very good. Uh, and, uh, and he'll be probably the lead apostle in Jerusalem. Uh, but right now, they're just brothers. And I can't tell, it doesn't really tell you what they're up to, if they, if they really want Jesus to do well, or they're trying to set him up for failure. I don't know what. But they encourage him to go to the Feast of Tabernacles and to show the works. He says, hey, if you're doing all these works, you want people to see it, uh, right? And Jesus answers them with this. He says in uh, verses 6 and 7, Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Now, at this point, we're casting his brothers as unbelievers. As I said, James, at least, is going to get his act together at some point. You know how it is with brothers. Anyway, um, so there's two principles here that I want to talk about. The first one is time. Jesus says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Now, here's what it means when he says, your time is always ready. If uh, I'm independent then all, every time is my time. I can do whatever I want. 
Is it nap time? Sure. Is it lunchtime? Sure. Is it time to work? Okay. But it's my time, and I get to decide what I do with it. My time's always ready. You understand what I'm saying? Jesus says, it's not my time because it's God's time, not his time. You understand? So Jesus is saying, uh, I'm not going because it's not time for me to go and die on the cross yet. Or whatever. Uh, the indication here is that he is submitting his time to the Father. And he's going, you guys, your time is always ready because you're independent. You do what you want when you want. You understand. And so all of these bold words here, these principles, uh, are opportunities for us to evaluate how Jesus-like we are. Is my time my time, or is my time God's time? So, you know, for example, uh, Rachel and I were talking, because we're 61, and at 65, theoretically, you could retire if you want to, if you, you know, have money. Um, and, uh, heck, it could happen before that. Rachel could write a bestseller, it could become a blockbuster movie, and we could retire next year. Right? Wouldn't that be awesome? And so anyway, we talked about how fun it'd be to get a motorhome and drive around the country for a year and just see stuff. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. Now, here's the thing. I can't just decide to do that. I'm not allowed to just decide to do that. And I'm not putting that on you. You may be allowed to just decide to do that. But I can't even retire without asking God if it's okay. Because he told me to do this. I'm, I'm only doing it because he told me. You need to understand that. Okay? And you kind of want that. So, uh, my time is not my time. Now, again, you may have latitude on that. God may be telling you, pick whatever state you want to live in, do whatever job you want to do, just keep walking with me. And that's fine. He's not saying that to me. He's saying, stay here, do this. I don't get to decide I want to live in Colorado. Right? Or Tennessee, somewhere where there's mountains and real trees. <laughs> right? You understand, it's not my time. Is it your time or is it God's time? And that's what you have to decide. And if it's God's time, then we end up like Jesus, having to wait in faith. It's not my time yet, I'm waiting. How many of you are excited about all the prophetic words about revival and a move of God? And we were pressing into it last night. I, I was hoping to see more hands on that. Uh, and in the fall, we were really pressing into that, right? So what we've done is we've, we've developed a, a five-month plan of all the things we need to do, and we've scheduled revival, a move of God, for late in May. You all understand? Can't do it, can we? There is so much when we turn things over to God where we have to wait on him. We find ourselves waiting on what he's doing and when he's going to do it. And it's annoying if you really like your independence or if you really like your five-year plans. Right? I always tell people, you know, you should know people who push the five-year plan thing. I said, I don't have any problem with the five-year plan. You tell me what God's doing in five years, I'll plan for it. Right? Because... All of my plans have to adapt to him. 
And so this is what's going on here. And so the first evaluation point is time. Is it our time or his time? And he tells his brothers, your time is always ready. You can go to the feast if you want, not go to the feast you want. I got to wait and see if dad says to go to the feast. And then he says this, the world can't hate you. It hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. So we have to consider not only our time, but our testimony. What is our testimony? If our testimony is all the things that Jesus says, we will be hated by association, and there's no way around that. Have you guys noticed? It's going to be amazing how much our culture is, is entering into some of this right now. Have you guys noticed any hate by association going on? Yeah. So this is what's happening with Jesus. Hate by association. And the real issue is not going along. Why will the world not hate his brothers? Because they're going along with the world's agenda. They can't hate you because you're playing along. Anybody feel like there's an agenda we have to decide whether or not we're going to go along with? Or several agendas we have to decide whether or not we're going to go along with? And if we don't go along, somebody's going to be mad. Going to be hated. So you have to make up your mind. This following Jesus thing, we're probably going to get hated. Now, this going along is exactly what he's talking about in Matthew chapter 11, verses 17 and 18. He's talking to me, he goes, you know what you guys are like? You're like children in the marketplace going, hey, we played a happy song and you didn't dance. We played a sad song and you didn't mourn. We keep changing it and you aren't following what we're saying. We're like just tossing stuff out in kind of a crazy random way. And it's annoying us that you're not going along. You guys see any of this? Yeah? Again, without going into too many details, this is the life we're seeing out there, right? And so we have to decide, is our testimony going to be the testimony of Jesus and the testimony of his word? And uh, if we do that, there's going to be a lot of stuff we can't go along with. All right. Anyway, that's probably enough of that. So the brothers go down to the Feast of Tabernacles, um, which is, by the way, it's a feast that happens in the fall, October-ish. It's eight days, Sabbath to Sabbath. Sabbath, six days, the next Sabbath, right? It's a very happy feast. Now, so what he does is he goes up later secretly. He sneaks in to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, And the Jews, we find, are everybody's looking for him. He is the talk of the feast. They're looking for him for good reasons and for bad reasons. Uh, And they're debating whether he's good or whether he's a deceiver, right? And what he does is about midway through the feast, he just goes up and starts teaching in the temple. So if you were thinking that Jesus wasn't going to Jerusalem because he was afraid, probably not. Because a good way to get caught is to go stand in the middle of the temple and teach during one of the feasts when all of Israel is required to come to the temple. So, super duper visible, steps up on the main stage, the temple, mid-feast, and begins to teach. And not only is he going to do that, he's going to stay at the feast for the remainder of that week. And we find, uh, in chapter 8, he'll still be there. We find, all the way through chapter 10, we find that he's still in the area for uh, what we call Hanukkah, 
for the winter festival, or the winter thing that the Maccabeans uh, put in place. And so he's going to stay in Judea for a couple months just teaching. So uh, he's not afraid. Uh, he's just following God's timing. Now, as he begins to teach, the Jews marvel at his teaching. And the reason they're marveling is because they know he hasn't studied. He hasn't been to seminary. He's a hick from Galilee. It would be like a guy coming in here with a hat that says Holopaw High School and cow dung on his boots and standing up and saying really profound stuff. And you're going, oh, I wasn't expecting that. That guy hasn't even gone to college. How does he know that stuff? A little arrogant, right? So they're impressed with his teaching, even though he hasn't been to any of the really good, you know, uh, rabbi schools in Jerusalem. And uh, he begins to address this. He goes, so it's basically, uh, he knows what they're saying or thinking. And uh, he says, so you're impressed with my doctrine, huh? Well, it's really not my doctrine. That's why it's impressive. Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. And then one of my favorite verses, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Now first, let's talk about doctrine. Is your doctrine the Father's doctrine or is it your doctrine? Do you have the option of having different doctrine than the Father? Because the church, we're all reading the same book and coming up with a lot of different doctrine, aren't we? And there's got to be a reason for that. And I think it's us putting ourselves in it. Because our doctrine needs to be the Father's doctrine. So we need to get it from the Word, not from our experience, not from our culture. It's not adapting. Jesus isn't adapting to American culture Amen. or any other culture. He's causing us to adapt to the culture of heaven, Amen. right? Which follows his word. Now, here's what I want you to see. He says, if anyone wills to do his will, he'll know about this doctrine. Catch this. This is important. Submission to God, a submitted heart, a desire to do his will is a prerequisite for doctrinal integrity. Now, the Pharisees were smart guys, and they'd been to good schools, and they had doctrine, and they missed Jesus because their hearts weren't really submitted to God. I don't care how many, you know, doctorate and divinities you have, if you haven't submitted your heart in a full, real way to God, if you're still functioning in independence, if you're still influenced by the culture then I call your doctrine into question. Doctrinal integrity starts with the understanding that it comes from God, and my submission to Him will affect my ability to rightly discern the word of truth and to come up with good doctrine. Does that make sense? So it's a good place to evaluate ourselves. Is my doctrine based in a submitted heart? God, whatever you say. Uh, some of it bugs me. I would like to have different doctrine. Uh, you know, 
I'd like to not always have to love my enemies. I'd like to be able to punch a couple of them. That's not God's doctrine. Right? So I don't have a choice. I have to conform to the culture of heaven. It's just an example. You probably never want to punch anyone. The other thing he says is, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the Father, the one who sent him, is true and no unrighteousness is in him. The way we can make sure that we're always walking in truth and walking in righteousness is to really, 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 really want to glorify the Father and not want to glorify ourselves. We call that humility, right? And humility can be hard. It's a constant battle of a choice between self and God on who gets glory. I'll tell you where it's the hardest is there have been times where I was wrongly accused of things and wanted to set the record straight. And often, God will stop me and go, I don't want you to justify yourself. That ever happened to you? Yeah. Why is he doing that? Because he wants me to learn humility. He wants me to not speak for myself and seek my own glory. He's going, I'm not offended. Don't you be offended. I don't care if they don't understand you. I understand you. Move on. Don't take it personally. Right? And so an embracing of radical humility is going to be required for us to have good doctrine, for us to understand God. And it's going at our hearts, isn't it? All right. Uh, so I'm, gonna, I'm not going to beat these real hard. I'm just enough to you know, make you feel like I feel. And then uh, let you go home and you and God talk about it. But you should be talking together about these bold words and going, how am I doing on this, God? So, Jesus talks some more. He says, hey guys, Moses gave you the law, none of you keep it. Uh, and this is interesting because the eight-day Feast of Tabernacles is followed immediately on the ninth day by a one-day feast, uh, Simchat Torah, which is a celebration of the giving of the law. So he's Again, it's in context. He's going, in about four or five days, you guys are going to celebrate how excited you are about the law, but none of you keep it. Right? So your hearts aren't really in it. So then he goes on. He says, why do you seek to kill me? And they immediately deny it. What? You, dude, you're crazy. You got a devil. Who's trying to kill you? Now, maybe that crowd right there, but it's interesting that just a few verses later, they're going to marvel at him teaching, and they go, isn't this the guy that the Jewish leaders want to kill? So they know that they want to kill him. They just don't want to be responsible. They're just going, well, it's not me. I don't want to kill you. I just don't understand what you're saying. So he says this, and then he makes this final point. He goes, look, Moses gave you guys circumcision and you circumcise on the Sabbath, and you're angry because I heal on the Sabbath. It's okay for you to circumcise on the Sabbath. That's a work. It's not okay for me to heal on the Sabbath, right? Which sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? Which is the point Jesus is trying to make. And it leads him into John 7, 24. I realize I have like three memory verses out of just this chapter. This is one of them. Uh, 
18 was the other. Um, he says, do not, out of this discussion, he says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. It's not about whether or not I healed on the Sabbath. It's about this guy needed healed and I loved him. It's okay to love on the Sabbath because God's all about love, right? And they're not getting that. They're getting hung up on the technicalities. So let's talk about judgments. And what I want you to see here is God's saying, don't judge just by appearance. Judge with righteous judgment. He's talking about judge with our hearts, not just with the rules. It doesn't mean we break the rules. But we judge with our hearts. I'll tell you what it's like. Uh, if you watch a good you know, cop show, uh, people are always getting off on a technicality. Everybody knows they did it, but they get off on a technicality. You know what I'm talking about. So legally, they're not guilty, and they, and they get off with it. We have the same thing going on in our government uh, where we have you know, filibusters and, and reconciliation and, uh, and this and that and the other and committees and holding it up and blah, blah, blah. And things happen, and because it's legal... Because on technicality, we have all these people saying ridiculous stuff, but it's okay. Well, let me tell you something. God isn't swayed by technicalities. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and no one will get off on a technicality because God is judging according to the thoughts and intents of the heart. He's not going to say to, you know, our political leaders who he gave authority to, oh, well, it was legal, so abortion's okay. Because you guys crossed your T's and dotted your I's, and uh, there were some pretty clever tricks there, and you got that done. Or murder was okay over here, or corruption was okay over here, or he's not going to say that. No one's going to get away in a technicality. And he's telling us, quit judging by appearance. Quit judging by technicalities. Quit saying in your heart, well, technically, he did this, so I can do that. Amen. And judge with righteous judgment. I'm looking at hearts. And so this is how this works out for me. Uh, occasionally, this, you're going to find this hard to believe, but occasionally, people annoy Rachel and I. <laughs> yeah. I know, it's hard to believe. No one in this room, of course. But those people, you know. And, uh, and so we find ourselves annoyed. And here's what we regularly do. And it's not, it's not easy. Uh, it's a simple concept. It's not easy to do. But, and it takes time. And it takes effort on our part. But here's what we regularly do. We regularly find ourselves going, God, you've got to show us this person's heart. You've got to show us your heart towards this person because they're annoying me. And I can't genuinely have affection for them unless you reveal hearts. And, and it will often work where uh, we'll begin to get God's heart for them. We'll begin to, you know, and sometimes it's just a person who's, you find out, you realize, and you're praying, and you're going, ah, oh, they're wounded. They're just, they're just acting on their wound. I don't need to take that personally. They don't need to be, I don't need to be annoyed by that. Right? Hard to do, isn't it? But that's what he's talking about. When he says, don't judge according to appearance, uh, judge with the heart. Now, you know, what you, well, you know where you can't do that? You can't do that when you read an article about a guy on the internet who lives 
387 miles from you, and you don't know him. You have no opportunity to get to know his heart, do you? So we should probably quit making those judgments by appearance. Because technically, he said that statement. Pulled from context. No one's done that, right? Okay, good. All right. God is calling us to make judgments from heart like him. And so uh, we have to know someone to do that often, don't we? Or, and here's an option, you may not realize this is an option. You don't have to make a judgment. You could just go, I don't know, and walk away. When someone goes, do you think this guy's a heretic? Or whatever. You just go, don't know, don't care, don't know him, lives far away, not my job. It's okay, I release you to not make judgments on people just because other people want you to make judgments on people. Save them for when you need them. The heart of Jesus. We're getting this? So the Jews are amazed at his boldness, and it's at this point that they go, isn't this the guy that the leaders want to kill, and he's just standing up there saying these bold things and making everybody angry? And uh, they debate whether or not he's the Messiah. Some think he is, some think he isn't. And what comes up in the debate is where he's from. Well, he's from Galilee, and we don't know where the Messiah comes from, or do we know where the Messiah comes from? So they're getting into the technicalities that uh, we often love to debate. And uh, Jesus jumps into the middle of this discussion, says, and Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, you both know me and you know where I'm from. So what he's saying there is, yes, you know I'm the Messiah and you know I'm from heaven and you know I came from the Father, which is going to make some people mad. Uh, You both know me and you know where I'm from. And I have not come for myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. This is a very bold, clear statement, uh, which is going to make the religious leaders angry. Now, he's saying clearly where his authority comes from, which is, if you recall, that's one of the things the Pharisees asked him. Tell us by whose authority you do this. And he wouldn't answer him. He said, you answer me a question about John, I'll tell you. And they couldn't answer, so he didn't. But now he's telling them, uh, here's where my authority comes from. It comes from heaven. He is saying he is the Messiah sent from God. And what we get out of this is we have to decide where authority comes from, where our authority comes from. Romans 13, you may find helpful. It's very simple. It says that all authority, secular or religious, or familial, comes from God. Any questions? All authority comes from God, which means for all authority we've been given, we have to give an account to God for how he handled that. And so you may think this doesn't apply to you, uh, but it does if you're a husband, if you're a parent, that whatever authority you have over your family as a husband came from God, and you'll have to give an account to God for it. If you're a parent, Your authority to raise your kids came from God. And you'll have to talk to God about how he wants that done. You're under his authority, right? And so this is one of those things where, as I talked about in the beginning, that independent spirit that we so love as Americans. Well, it doesn't extend to 
this, uh, we have to give an account for. We have lots of latitude in how we do it, and we should involve the helper in helping us, but uh, we have to give an account for it, this authority. And so we have to know where authority comes from. We have to know where our authority comes from. Does this make sense? All right, good. Let's move on. So the Jews try to take him, but they can't, uh, and many believe. So uh, I, I just love that they, they keep trying to take him, but they, it doesn't say how, it just says they can't. He's standing in the middle of the temple. There's crowds of thousands. Let's take him. Where'd he go? They just can't. They just can't do it because it's not his time yet. This speaks to the incredible level of control God has. They can't even arrest him, let alone kill him yet. They're not going to kill him till he's ready to be killed. They're not going to arrest him till he's ready to be arrested. Amen. We'll read about that later. Okay, so they try and take him, but they can't, and many believe. What I want you to see here is that when you begin to make declarations like he's making, Jesus is the Son of God, come from God. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the door that we have to submit to him, that we aren't allowed to be independent. When you begin to say stuff like that, you will find the gray area begin to shrink. And there won't be as much tolerance as you would like. So people will either say, let's stop this mess, or they'll believe in him. Do you guys notice the gray area going away a little bit in our culture? It is. Ultimately, by the time Jesus comes again, there's going to be very little gray area. You believe in Jesus, you're saved. You don't, uh, you're sheep to be slaughtered. Right? Or even, actually, that's backwards. Even if you do, you're sheep to be slaughtered. So it's not, I hate Jesus, I love Jesus, lots of gray area. It's going to be a lot of, I hate Jesus, I love Jesus. Very little gray area. Just know that's coming. Right? And so, we see that happening here. People are taking sides because they're being forced to because Jesus is making these ridiculous declarations. Now, so what he does, he's, he's going to say a couple more things. I'm going to call these final statements. They're obviously not final statements because we got more Bible. But they're, they're final statements for the feast. Let's put it that way for the week, for the tabernacle thing, for this time. The first one is in John 7, 33 and 34. Then Jesus said to them, now, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. The chief priests and the Pharisees have sent officers, so these are official guys with, I don't know, swords or big sticks or something, and they said, go arrest Jesus. This is their job. When, they, when the Pharisees and the religious leaders tell the officers to go arrest somebody, they go arrest that person, right? So in my mind, I don't know if this is true, but in my mind, I see the officers standing there at the crowd ready to arrest Jesus when he makes this next statement. And he looks him right in the eye and he says, I shall be with you a little while longer and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. I kind of picture him looking right at the officers sent to arrest him and saying, go tell the Pharisees that. He didn't get arrested. It's his final word to the religious leaders. 
And it's very clear. You will seek me, meaning Messiah. And you will not find me. You will continue. When I'm gone, you'll continue to look for Messiah. You won't find him. And you will miss heaven. Where I go, you cannot come. Now, this isn't temporary because he uses the same language in John 13. When we get there, we will see he says to his disciples, where I'm going, you cannot come now, but you will follow after. He doesn't tell them you will follow after. He goes, where I'm going, you're not going. Yikes. That's his final word to these proud religious leaders. I'm going to be gone. You're going to look for Messiah. You're not going to find him and you're going to miss heaven. That's heavy. It's the same word to any of us who take up their attitude, who don't want to submit to Jesus, who want to remain independent and make our own decisions. God will say, fine, you'll just miss heaven. Now, he also has a final word to the Jews. And he does what he does so often. He couches it in uh, a natural physical event that's happening so that they will understand. Here's the natural physical event. All eight days of the Feast of Tabernacle, a priest would go draw water from a stream that flowed below, just below the Temple Mount. They would take this, this living water, this flowing water, and they'd take it, they'd bring it up, and they would pour it out on the altar, and they would sing Isaiah 12.3. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And on this last day of the feast, it's like really joy, super happy. It's just happy, happy, happy. Uh, and they sing the song, you shall, uh, therefore with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. They're pouring this living water onto the altar. Uh, I find it interesting that the altar is brought from a stream that flows below the temple mount. If you read in Ezekiel 47, uh, there's a river of water that flows out of the temple of God. Right? If you read in Revelation chapter 22, the temple of God come down from heaven. There's a river of water that flows out of it. And everything it touches uh, lives. The dead sea will live. There's trees on either side whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. There's always a river of water flowing out of the temple. Who's the temple? You guys are a temple, right? All right, so catch this next verse. In this context, Jesus says, on that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The temple always has rivers of living water flowing out of it. Do you? He's talking about the Holy Spirit, which he keeps talking about. That's his final word to the Jews. Hey, just believe in me. And this comes to our desires, uh, the, the bold word that I want us to consider. What are our desires? Do we desire the Holy Spirit? Now, I mean that. Do you desire the Holy Spirit as a teacher uh, to fill you? to gift you, to lead you, or you just want enough Holy Spirit to get to heaven? I'll just take the seal that gets me in the gates. Some people do. Some people don't want too much Holy Spirit because he'll mess with your life. 
don't want it messing with my life. I like being in control of my life. don't want some Holy Spirit thinking he's in control of my life. Too, too real? <laughs> so it comes down to what do we desire? Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness or for our own way? The biggest, I think, hindrance to being led by the Spirit, to walking in the Spirit, is our desire for independence, our desire to be in control. I get it. I'm logical, sequential. I like having a plan. I don't like being out of control. It takes a lot of faith for me to believe God's in control when I'm not in control. I get it. But that's the deal, isn't it? And so we have to decide what are our desires. He says we can have the Holy Spirit, but we have to do some things. It says we have to thirst. We have to desire God's ways over our ways. We have to come to Jesus. And not just come to Jesus, but drink. We have to come to Jesus and drink. It's the same as eat my flesh that we talked about last week. We have to come to Jesus and drink from the living water and feed on him. We have to believe in Jesus. As the scriptures have said, believe in him that way. Believe everything the scriptures say about him. That's what we have to do. And if we'll do that, he will give us his Holy Spirit to lead us. But it's going to cost us our independence and our control. Do you understand? Yeah? Okay. It's very Solomon here now. It's like something died. You guys know the verses on that, right? Die to ourselves, live for him, stuff like that. It's a real death. So anyway, it's up to us to evaluate. Is our time God's? Is our testimony about Jesus? Is our doctrine based in submission and desire to do his will and not, you know, technically follow the law while we get our way? Are we embracing humility, wanting him to receive glory? Are we going after judgments that look at the heart and not just the circumstances? Are we recognizing that all authority comes from him and uh, that our desire is to be led by him, by his spirit? Are we desiring his ways, not our ways? All these things you can evaluate on your own. Here's how it finishes up. The Jews continue to debate about him, whether he's the Messiah or not. The officers go back and report into the chief priests and Pharisees. And the first question is, why didn't you bring Jesus? You guys are officers. We send you out to bring people. You bring people back. You drag them back here in chains. Where's the guy? Where's the chains? Why didn't you bring Jesus? And their answer is, nobody ever talked like this guy. You, you had to be there. We just couldn't do it. We stood there. We looked right at him. He looked right at us. Kind of freaked us out. We just, I'm just saying we couldn't do it. First time, please. But we couldn't do it. And the Pharisees' response is really interesting. In fact, I want to read this. Towards the end, he says, uh, yeah, they say, no man ever spoke like this man. And then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? Hey, the elite are in agreement that this is truth. How dare you think something else? 
doesn't just happen in the world. That happens in the church too. Doesn't it? The educated, the big names, have all agreed that this is true. How dare you think something else, you officers? Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers and the Pharisees believed him? Then there's this incredible statement in verse 49. But this crowd, all these people that do not know, I'm sorry, that this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You hear what he's saying? Look, we've been to school. We understand this stuff. We've said what the deal is. All those multitudes out there are idiots and accursed. You guys ever been called one of the idiots in the multitude? There's some incredible arrogance going on here, isn't there? And one guy, Nicodemus, remember him from John chapter 3, went to talk to Jesus at night? Nicodemus pipes up and he says, does our law judge a man before it's heard him? Shouldn't we at least talk to this guy before we reach a judgment? Shouldn't we at least appear to be making a righteous judgment instead of just judging by mere appearance? Right? And uh, they answer him, uh, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Look, I don't care that he's healing the sick and raising the dead and multiplying food. He came from Galilee. We got him on that technicality. We aren't considering all the miracles. We aren't considering any of his claims. He's out. He came from Galilee. We're done. N end of discussion. We wouldn't do anything like that, right? Disqualified because of this statement. Because of that thing. But that's what they do. We, perhaps, can do better uh, if we consider these seven principles that God highlighted for us in Jesus. Amen? All right, we have a lot of time to worship. I don't know. Uh, I had the sense that God wanted to do something, but I don't know what. So we're just going to go worship and get real close to him and see if his spirit leads us into anything interesting. Uh, that good? I don't, I don't have a 10-minute plan or a 30-minute plan. I've got a Jesus plan. My plan is let's just worship Jesus, the awesome one, the one who uh, the Pharisees send people to arrest him, and they come back going, there's nobody like this guy. We can't do it. That's the God we serve, this incredible, amazing man, Jesus, who just keeps demonstrating for us how to live life in a so much more powerful way. So let's just go to the one who loves us and worship him and uh, see where he takes us. Amen.